I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. I'd like to kick off this episode with a revolting little update from our producer DJ CJ. Lynx have launched a Marmite body spray. Now, this raises a red flag to me because last week we were told the news is that there's not enough Marmite because of pubs being closed. So how come there's not enough Marmite to fill the larger jars, but there is enough surplus Marmite to make a body spray? Interesting. What you're saying is there has been a rerouting of vital resources, which is this not is the first what time. I'm thinking. Yeah, this is what I'm thinking. Now it raised a red flag for me because I think it's labouring under the false pretense that teenage boys do not already smell pretty funky. <laughs> You know, thank God they can now douse themselves in Lynx Africa and get the Marmite Pong. And then just to really seal in that yeasty flavour, like grouting for the groin, they can use the accompanying shower gel. Yes, not just a spray, a shower gel too. Right, I feel like there are a lot of unanswered questions there and I look forward to the Panorama special. Thank you to the listener who responded to Dolly's piece on the stinky Greenland shark with a New Yorker piece on eels who have the most complicated biology of any animal I've ever known. I read this piece when I was very tired and was so confused by the various incarnations eels go through. Like in their fourth stage of eeldom, they just (laughs) rescind their stomachs. They don't have stomachs anymore and they just live off their own flat fat they live off their own fat for the last quarter of their life so they do away with their giblets and that's what they do did did you know that eels are critically endangered they do away with their giblets i have completely lost track of what this podcast is (laughs) look they're the new red squirrels they're critically endangered what just the bog standard eel or is this is a this is a particular type of eel well now this is interesting because eels metamorphosize so much it's it's sort of quite difficult for marine biologists to decide at which point they measure the eel because there's four different types of eel within one eel's life so they went with the standard sort of glass eel they counted some of those even though again that's very difficult because apparently most of them don't like show up anyway they've determined that they are critically endangered this is a very bad paraphrasing of a very intelligent piece but but these but these are not the eels that you get in the pie and mash shop oh surely um... not I think they could Surely be the bog not. standard eel. Oh, God, I hate eels. I'm feeling all, like, do they not make you feel so... Uh, they 
do. But then I had a smoked eel sandwich once, which was completely delicious. But that cannot be the same beast, surely. I'm sure we'll get lots of emails about this. I look forward to reading all of them. (laughs) I'll give the beast another read as well. (laughs) I enjoyed the listener email who gave us two further facts on the Greenland shark and the pine marten, which we discussed last week. One, pine martens raise their families in knot holes in trees. Little baby pine martens living in holes in trees is magical and adorable. Number two, Greenland sharks don't reach sexual maturity, so can't reproduce until they're 150 years old, which means that they're children for over a century. Would you like to be a child for over a century? Is that charming or terrifying? Many ex-boyfriends would argue (laughs) that I am. (laughs) I think maybe it's a less charming idea for the parent. I think it sounds quite fun. The Peter Pan of sea life. Last animal fact for today, I promise. Did you know that Diego the tortoise has retired his loins? Who's Diego the tortoise? You're saying this like I should know him as a public figure. As a woman of animal orient, you should absolutely know who Diego is. Diego is the 100-year-old Galapagos tortoise, credited with almost single-handedly saving the tortoise species by fathering an estimated... Wait for it. 800 offspring. Player. He weighs 800 kilograms, is one and a half metres tall when stretching to his full height. If you look at a little picture of him, he just really cranes his neck. Anyway, he's, um, thanks to his efforts, the population of the giant Galapagos tortoise now stands at 2,000. So he's retired. He's retired his giblets too. Oh, look at him. I'm looking at pictures of him now. God, he does look knackered, bless him. Oh, I've actually got a picture of him. How do I say that phrase that people use that I quite like? Infagrande. <laughs> what? Oh, inflagrante, like sexual, in coitus. Yeah I've, yeah, I've got him mounting another tortoise. He doesn't look that happy about it, actually. How can a tortoise look happy, Dolly? It's like the Warren Beatty of tortoises. Do you know, there was that story a while back where Warren Beatty claimed to have slept with... I can't remember the figure. Thousands, thousands it must have been of women. And the Daily Mail, I think, ran an article comparing it to various town sizes in Britain. So I remember that he'd slept with all of Beaconsfield or something. (laughs) I always find these, this sort of sexual braggadocio when it gets into the thousands, very perplexing because it just comes down to a matter of time. I don't, you know, that's a full-time job. I know, and I also I also just like the idea of Warren Beatty, who's this, like, absolutely devastating stud, having this, like, sad little pile of notebooks where he keeps a list of everyone he's ever shagged. Did he keep a list, or was he estimating? He must have been estimating. It's just too Adrian Mole, isn't it, to just sit there at the end of every single encounter to go home and write it in your book. How could he possibly have known the exact number? Anyway, I'm sure Diego the tortoise was too cool to have a notebook pile. (laughs) I think for many reasons, Diego the tortoise probably didn't have a notebook pile. Now, have you seen the video of the skateboarding businessman? No, wow, you are breaking news today, Panda. Coming (laughs) coming from you. (laughs) Let me see it.
Wow. I mean, far be it from me to criticise another person's skateboarding. He's a little bit unsteady on his feet there. I think it's extremely impressive how nifty he is whilst wearing suit trousers. Yeah, that is impressive. So was he just doing this on the street, just apropos of nothing, just on his way to work and someone captured it on camera? He was skateboarding to see his mum and he saw a crowd of people and decided to show them his new trick. And it's just such a charming little video that it's been very widely shared. He's called Avery Baxter and he teaches children from low-income households to skate in his spare time. Oh, what a nice man. I feel bad for offering that sort of X-factor judge criticism. I think he's a very good skateboarder. (laughs) He's definitely better than us. Um, The Hilo's uh, sub-editor, Abby, pointed out that skateboarding is back in fashion. Um, She keeps seeing it on TikTok, which is an app that neither of us have delved into, but it's all over (laughs) it, apparently. I thought you were going to say, which is an app that young people use to share amusing videos. (laughs) Boy, do they use it. I would like to be good at skateboarding, but not as much as I'd like to be good at other things. And speaking of viral videos, I came across Andrew Cotter this week, thanks to a recommendation from the DJ Nahal Arthanyaka. He's a sports broadcaster who started doing live commentary of his dogs, Olive and Mabel, during lockdown uh, when he was bored. His first ever video was posted in late March um, and it was him filming his dogs racing to eat their food and he was giving commentary on it. He's had a gazillion views and the dogs, the dogs, not him, have now got a book deal. Have a little look. And now they go, Olive, away first, but a problem with Mabel's ball. That might cost her now, having to play catch-up. Both settling quickly into rhythm. You can see the contrast in styles. Mabel, heavy tail use, happy to be alive. Everything's amazing. Olive, more steady, wasting little energy. Very much of the old Labrador school eating's a serious business. Don't bollocks around wagging your tail. DJ CJ's points out that he would normally be commentating on Wimbledon. Um, Instead, he has um, transferred his talents to his Labradors. Oh, I love that. I want to tell you about my social media hero this week, Panda, who is Nigel Slater, the cookery writer and TV chef, who I didn't realise is well known for the elegant shade that he throws at his readers online. And this <laughs> elegant was, shade. It's elegant shade. So my attention was first drawn to this by Nigel Slater posting one of his recipes from The Observer on Twitter with the description, aubergines, feta, chickpeas, ras al hanout, a luscious, aromatic dinner for midweek. A woman replied saying, looks delicious. If only I wasn't allergic to aubergine, I'd have a go at this. Any substitute suggestions, please? Nigel replied, Susan, it's an aubergine recipe. Someone <laughs> someone else replied, ras el hanout, question mark. There you are, Jane. I've Googled it for you. You know, to save you the trouble with the Wikipedia link. <laughs> That's actually quite a fair response, saying if you've got an aubergine alternative. (laughs) Maybe he was just bored, titless with giving alternatives. I think he's just at his wit's end. My favourite is this. I don't know when this dates back to. He'd obviously written something about Japanese food and someone who commented underneath, Japan is on my list for next year and I don't want to spend too much time in big cities. Any chance you can draw up an itinerary so I can start researching and learning a bit more, please? I would really appreciate it. Nigel replied... Sorry, Helena, I'm not a fucking travel agent. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, that is so... quite a tall order, isn't it? Asking a cookery writer to draw you up an itinerary. It's just so delicious to me because Nigel Slater is seemingly such a like polite and softly spoken man. <laughs> I know people say that the F word is not helpful, but in that instance, it really adds a little je ne sais quoi. And here's my favourite story of the week. A 60-year-old Italian woman stuffed olives with her hands during brain surgery. The BBC reports, awake brain surgery, as it is known, is used to treat some neurological conditions such as tumours that affect the areas of the brain responsible for vision, movement or speech. To help the surgeon try to inflict minimal damage on healthy tissue, the patient can be asked questions or engage in an activity during the operation. The two and a half hour procedure went very well and the patient is said to have prepared 90 olives in the space of an hour. I'm sure I once read something about someone knitting during brain surgery. Um, Imagine receiving that come Christmas. Here's the jersey I knitted whilst having my brain opened up. Quite cool. It's amazing. I can't quite understand it. Stuffing olives. Oh, delicious. I know. Moving on from memes, which are frequently so delightful, we could do an entire episode on them. And that's not a totally terrible idea. Anyway, to revisit I May Destroy You, I ummed and ahed about mentioning this for the second week in a row as we try not to repeat content. But can we talk about it again, do you think? Everyone I know is talking about it. um, And I'm sure lots of our listeners are watching it and enjoying it as much as we are. So last week we spoke when I'd watched episode one and two and you had watched episode one, two, three, four. And I've since now watched episodes three and four that you said are just mind blowing. They're even better than one and two. And if five and six are even better than three and four, I just it, I can't even imagine what episode 11 and 12 are going to be like. Is that is it even possible? So what I found fascinating about those two episodes is that it had been set up, obviously, as a show about... Um, consent it's it's based on Michaela Cole being sexually assaulted in 2016 by a group of strangers I didn't realize it would then so adeptly and uniquely look at consent from so many different angles through so many different relationships um, so many different kind of sexual setups and it becomes this absolute commentary on consent but in the least weighty preachy for want of a better word way I really liked Zing Sang's review of the show where she says that a drama that pivots around the that it's a drama that pivots around the idea of consent in all types of sexual interludes which sounds really heavy but Michaela Cole makes London look like this neon wonderland filled with messy romance and I thought that was such a good way of putting it. That, and then within that neon wonderland, Arabella is just electric. The neon wonderland thing is so integral to the show and so important when talking about the kind of specific generational DNA of the show. Mm. Because I'm going to say now, I'm going to do a spoiler alert. So anyone who doesn't want to hear about episodes three and four of I May Destroy You, skip ahead. Skip ahead for five minutes. That includes me. Oh, sorry, Charlie. <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> I have to take the spoiler on the chin. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, DJ CJ. That is your spoiler alert. Tune back in in five minutes. So the bit that I keep coming back to 
that has really, really haunted me. I mean, so much of it obviously has haunted me, but the thing that just rang so true to me and seemed to get to the heart of a lot of what the show's about is the moment when her best friend Terry has just had a threesome in Italy. And you can see her thought process as this encounter is coming to an end of her just sort of metabolizing what that experience was and what the level of consent in it was and what the level of desire in it was and how much she enjoyed it. This is all just done on her face. And then as she watches the two men leave the, the apartment, she sees them give each other a high five. And that obviously is also heavy with suggestion of fetishization, which is relevant to the fact that she is a black woman as well, as well as it just being a kind of horrible moment of thinking of yourself as a, as a kind of passive thing to be conquered and she looks out on this scene with sadness and she immediately picks up her phone and texts her friend and says just had a threesome in Italy and I just found it again it's that coloring everything with that neon wonderland how much of that is self-imposed how much of that is to obscure the truth how much of that is to give a narrative version of your life and yourself for the world to consume that is most exciting and most enviable and the discrepancy between the reality of that experience and how she felt really felt about that experience and the idea of going through something not so much for the kind of sensory experience of it but to be able to have a story that no one can take away from you afterwards to create your own legacy I mean fuck me that sums up all of my 20s and most of the 20s of loads and loads of people that I know my age and I just found it a breathtaking moment of observation I found it so powerful when Terry looks out the window and there's a suggestion that the men knew each other before to me, that was a really sharp commentary on consent because Terry gave consent to having a threesome with two men that she thought didn't know each other. And when it's and when the suggestion that they did know each other is introduced as she watches them from her bedroom window, that then becomes an entirely different scenario which she didn't give consent to. And I just hadn't thought about consent in such nuanced terms. And obviously that's something Michaela then does again in episode four which is really really harrowing I know a lot of people found that desperately sad and shocking and I think it's really really important that it's done through two gay men because I just I've never seen that on screen I have not thought about that or read about that nearly enough um when I think about rape I tend to think about heterosexual rape and I think that was just an incredibly well written and yeah just a shocking scene yeah I just can't really find the language sufficient to describe not only how compelling this program is um but how important it is and I just really want to reiterate again if you have not skipped ahead and you're listening to this having not watched it it is to use the Gen Z term, all the feels. Yes, it's it's shocking and it's sad and it's harrowing and it will absolutely send your mind spinning. But it is also very funny, very perceptive, very sharp, very wry, 
beautiful to look at. It's just tremendously, tremendously clever. Um, and don't worry, we're not going to do this every week on the next two episodes, but it was really worth, I thought, us chatting about it again now that we're up to the same point. No, I think we need to make it clear about how we really feel about it, Pandora. <laughs> <laughs> A few people online have pointed out that Chewing Gum, um, which came out in 2015, a drama made by Michaela Cole, featured the fourth wall, which is where the protagonists speak to camera. So they speak directly through the invisible wall, which is the camera between the characters and the audience. And it's something that Phoebe Waller-Bridge was really lauded for doing in Fleabag. And I didn't realise, because I haven't seen Chewing Gum, that Michaela did it first. And that's not to set up some sort of competition between them, but is is definitely um, a reminder to everyone who hasn't seen it to go back and watch it. And um, as soon as my book is out next month and I can slightly take a breath, I'm going to reward myself with a chewing gum binge. Not literally, because I've heard that does give you diarrhoea, but uh, televisually. (laughs) Yes, that's on my watch list as well. On a separate subject of culture, did you see the news from Downing Street this morning that cinemas, galleries and museums will be open from the 4th of July with a proposed new one-metre distancing rule? I'm so happy that cinemas are reopening as I have missed them so much. But I am perplexed at how they're going to work with the one metre rule and how restaurants going to work with the one metre rule. Better than they could with the two metre rule, presumably. Definitely. But I mean, you're talking about (laughs) cinemas, restaurants and galleries. Those are the prime spots for first awkward hinge dates. I mean, they're not going to be. I know, I was being. I was being glib. I mean, Abby's pointed out that in Germany, where she lives, they have been doing it with staggered seating and plexiglass, which obviously anyone who's been going to supermarkets will see that that's been, you know, plexiglass has been put up pretty much everywhere. I think in train stations as well. But I think it will just be, you know, it will be what we know to be the lasting legacy of the pandemic alongside desperate, desperate tragedy is you know, a loss of money because there will just be a lot of empty seats. Everything will be much harder to book as I imagine it will be at what, sort of 30% capacity. But I do think that quite a lot of people are actually too nervous to go into places yet. Anyway, I I know we've seen queues of people outside Ikea, but I think that gives um, quite an unbalanced skew to how a lot of people are actually feeling, which is, and I include myself in this, that they're feeling nervous about going shopping unless they really have to. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Support for the Hilo comes from Babylon Storen's new Morvedre Rosé. With summer around the corner and green spaces opening up, it is definitely seasonally appropriate to crack open the rosé. 
Be the first to taste the new 2020 vintage of Babylon Storen's Mourvedre Rosé with hints of raspberry and rose petals. An elegant dry wine from their beautiful gardens in the Cape Winelands of South Africa. If you buy three or more bottles of 2020 Babylon Storen Mourvedre Rosé, you get a 500ml tin of their extra virgin olive oil as a gift. Go to thenewt.co.uk forward slash the Hilo. Thank you to Babylon Storen's Mourvedre Rosé. enjoying this week dolly i unsurprisingly have two podcasts to recommend the first is monroe bergdorf on table manners i really enjoyed this conversation between her jesse ware and lenny ware and i think it's because the very nature of that podcast format is that it's a relaxed conversation which is open-ended and chatty and warm and i think that so often when trans people are invited into a public space to talk about their experience, they have to speak from a place of defensiveness as a necessity because they're being asked to somehow justify their experience or who they are. So this was such a refreshing listen because Monroe was just given a space to speak freely about her story um, and her beliefs without being attacked or challenged. And the line of inquiry from the hosts was so much more than specific questions on the trans experience or topical stories or asking her to be a mouthpiece on all trans experiences. You know, she talked a lot about her family, the complications that they've been through over the years. She talked about her horrific experience of being bullied at school and the impact of Section 28 legislation on how her bullying was managed by teachers. And she obviously just talks a lot about cooking and food and her favourite restaurants and going out and dating and what she likes to cook and how food featured in her upbringing. It was just a really nice kind of roaming conversation. And she also has a lot of very interesting facts about sea creatures, which now is apparently the high lows and mine main topic of interest. I did listen to that bit and um, think of you, actually. Um, I have learned so much from Munro. I also just really love listening to her as a broadcaster. I think for anyone who's not aware of the history, Munro's an activist who was fired by L'Oreal in 2017 for speaking out um, about racism. Fast forward to 2020 and L'Oreal made a statement a couple of weeks ago as the Black Lives Matter protests were... Starting, it was that real spike in in movement that we saw online when a lot of corporations were kind of scrabbling, I would say, to make statements. And Munro criticised L'Oreal. She said, how can you be making this statement when you fired me in 2017? And she talks about it on Table Manners. You know, there was absolutely no aftercare for her. So when she was fired and it was a news story, she had to deal with the most monumental amount of abuse coming her way. She shared some of it on Instagram the other day, by the way, and it is absolutely horrific. Uh, the the stuff that she's being told to do to herself um, and what she has to deal with every time she goes into her direct messages. Um, anyway, L'Oreal uh, rehired her and as an apology, um, I mean, I take it as an apology, I'm sure they would call it a sort of like supportive donation on behalf of one of their new ambassadors. But anyway, they transferred money to various charities, um, which included €25,000 to UK Black Pride. I think for a corporation that's worth 
well, at last count in 2017, it was worth 44 billion. I feel like maybe they could have given a little bit more as a fiscal apology. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But I agree. I absolutely loved this podcast. And um, I think she's an incredible force for change. The second podcast episode I wanted to talk about is Zadie Smith on literary friction. I've talked about this podcast before. It's my favourite book show hosted by Octavia Bright and Carrie Plitt. Each episode is themed and looks at various literary stylings or literary subjects and features an interview from an author who's written a book that adheres to that episode's theme. The author interviews are always really impressive because it's such a well-respected and loved podcast, particularly in publishing. So if you have a favourite author, it's always worth going through their archives because the chances are Literary Friction has done a brilliant interview with them. So this episode wasn't recent, but I was exercising my quite regular habit of feeling a bit fretful about life and therefore needing to hear from the wisdom of Zadie Smith and putting her name into the podcast iTunes store and finding this episode. And it's one of the most interesting interviews I've heard from her. I loved that episode. I do the same with Zadie Smith. I put in her name and that's how I came across the Teray Show, which is a really great podcast in the Mm. States. And I think we've mentioned it before, actually, on the high low, that Zadie Smith's interview with Teray is, I think, probably my favourite ever interview I've listened to with her. I really recommend that one as well. Yeah, that's a great one. And it's similar kind of terrain that she's crossing in this uh, interview, but such is the genius of Zadie Smith that she's saying completely new things that I've never heard her say before. So she talks a lot about writing at the beginning of the interview, how she thinks we need to readjust the hubris and ownership that comes with authorship as we know it. She describes how she believes writers are vessels for language and that the originality of a writer can at times be overstated because none of us have invented words. The raw materials that we work with are shared materials that everyone has access to that we have seen used and reused for centuries and centuries before us. Now, I've heard her speak about this idea before, but never in such a specific mode, whereby basically she means when a writer writes, they're drawing on the work of hundreds and thousands of people before them. No book exists without the libraries that existed before it, which I think is not only a very humbling idea, but a reassuring one as well. And I've heard her use the phrase before that writers are all small bodies of water that are flowing into a reservoir that is a collective consciousness, a collective culture, a collective project that is bigger than any of us can fathom. Oh, I forgot that she said that. I need to write that down in my little book of quotes. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, love that. She also speaks about the internet and technology very compellingly as she always does i think she has the wisest things uh, to say about the last 20 years of technical technological development she talks about the conflicts and the contradictions that live inside people how humans are made up of many different clashing personalities and how she believes that inside all of us there is uh, a raging chaos which having her say that made me feel phenomenally reassured <laughs> reassured in, she, ra- in your ragey chaos yeah that that's what she believes yeah. just to be the like baseline default of human existence and 
she says it's why she thinks fiction is therapy for so many people because it allows us to see and imagine and relate to all these various personalities and voices that inhabit our psyche. And then she says that's why she fears the internet and algorithms threaten to condense and erase that as a truth. There are conflicts and multitudes when seen through a lens of uniformity and tribalism and predicted consumerism can become a weakness, whereas she believes it's not a weakness. Yes, that reminds me of something that the playwright Richard Foreman said, that um, we have been turned into pancake people, um, flattened by the internet into sort of something 2D. And as Zadie Smith says, that the truth is that there is that rage and chaos. And that actually reminds me of something else she said during um, a conversation she had with the novelist Diana Evans, who wrote the brilliant book Ordinary People. Um, and I found this really unsettling, if I'm honest, and jarring, but deeply, deeply reassuring and freeing at the same time. Um, I think it can, you know, something can be both at the same time, is that the story that you are telling about yourself as you walk down the street is entirely different from the story that anyone else is telling about you. And that is just so powerful. And she said, you know, we're all just trapped in our own flesh cages. So we can sort of like, we can emote and we can emote and we can emote and we can express and express and express. And I mean, as I always think of it, we can ex- sort of self-express ourselves to death. But ultimately, it's we're only ever going to tell one story about ourselves. And, every, and that story is going to change every single day. And everyone's going to tell completely different stories about you and everyone else around them and themselves like it's it cannot it's not immutable and it can't be pinned down and and I love the way Zadie Smith talks about that it's, uh, that's something that I am really fascinated by and have written a little bit about so I just love hearing from her on that and that idea of the own the story that you tell about yourself only exists in your head that well it it go you saying that like sent fear like physically through me as I kind of grasped with that idea and that just shows the extent to which we have been led to believe mainly through this technological revolution that we have control yeah that like that like this false sense of control that I think is when that intersects with the reality of how little control particularly we have with people's perception is just just debilitating (laughs) you know it's just so yeah, it's it's almost like you know when you think about space. I can't think about space for too long. Like <laughs> just... I absolutely can't think about space. And I get that bit when Zadie Smith starts talking about like the philosophy of technology and and identity and outward identity and the conflicts of that. I just I just have to shelve it. I can't think about it too much. And then the most fascinating part of the interview for me, which relates to what we're speaking about, is when she talks about how she believes we traded in our free will in this technological boom and all we got in return really was the Google map on our phone. And she uses the Google map as a symbol of convenience and, again, this false sense of control. It's so disturbing and vindicating to hear her speak about this enormous philosophical anxiety in such a clear-eyed and comprehensible way. If there was one word that sums up for me the past whatever it's been, 12 years since the iPhone, it's this sense of inevitabilism that you are told day and night 
Well, it's inevitable. This is technology, and this is just how, how it is. And it starts small, and then the, the amount of things you hand over to, to the technology gets larger and larger. One of the first things was your children. It's inevitable. They have to have a phone because they have to go to school. What? Oh, okay. <laughs> so they all have to have the tracking device and the technology and that because they have to go to school. Okay, that's the first thing. Then it's the things started to get bigger. I mean, to me, the children was the biggest thing of all, but that went first. And then things like democracy started to fall in, in, into it and free will and the right to choose a government. And it all fell in, and, and the exchange was always uh, convenience. It's very convenient with the map and everything can't deny bloody useful to have a map. And that notes feature. Jesus. <laughs> um, and uh, it, I think what the despair comes from, in any political system, is when you feel you have no choice. That's what it is. And even when the no choice looks like a gift, like fun, I think people are smart and feel sen still sense something's wrong here. I don't feel completely free. Like when I wake up in the morning, I don't. When I rush to look at that before my child, I don't think that's my free will. Like I don't think ten years ago I would have thought that was a reasonable action, you know. Or when I see my grandparents ignoring their grandchildren in favour of, I think ten years ago I would have thought, Fuck, what's going on there? What happened to grandma? <laughs> <laughs> or when we're all on holiday. In a beautiful environment, and everyone's silent. And I think these things, which have become inevitable, um, every now and then we kind of look up and think, "Wait, wait, what? What happened? <laughs> and when did we agree to this? And is this okay? Is this?" So uh, that part, I thought, and the thing which always struck me is about—I don't know—to <laughs> keep pulling my mind, like, what is worthy of a human? Like, we are human and in my view, sacred, and so kind of extraordinary. And is this really, is this, is this it now? <laughs> is, this really, is this worthy of us? Because like, we're kind of amazing. And so uh, I, I'm always trying, I think, like everyone, to try and separate like, how much of this is technological determinism and how much of this is just raw capitalism. And, and I, when I'm <laughs> moving around that river and people have just given up the will to to move in the opposite direction. I'm you just hope. I'm optimistic. I'm just always hoping that this thing that we had for so long that was so important to us, our will, will return to us. Our sense of its of it, the power that we have, um, and the power that is not to be sold off to data harvesters for nothing. We 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 gave them everything. For nothing, for the map. I know about the map. For the map, <laughs> the map, and the notes, and but it's, it's too much. I loved a piece by Nisha Dolan on how autism has shaped her writing and her career as a writer. Nisha is the author of Exciting Times, a novel which we mentioned on. I think it was our back to school episode for want of a word after my maternity leave. So that would have been the sixth of April episode, and. The book has been gradually but very insistently gathering momentum. I've seen it included in the last few weeks in a lot of the best summer read roundups, you know, the best debut books of 2020. And her star is very much in ascent. A lot of people have compared Exciting Times to Sally Rooney as Nisha is only 27 um, and 
exciting times is quite dry and cynical and extremely observant on the petty cruelties and acts of love and this sort of like tango um, that exists between two people, whether they are friends, casual sex partners or romantic ones. What's really fascinating about this is that's not just like a literary style. Well, it is a literary style, but the reason Nisha says that she writes about these sort of interactions between people so beautifully or adeptly is not from experience. She writes about them because she doesn't have the experience. As a result, she has had to become somewhat of an expert in that field through study. That's so interesting. That is in direct opposition to how we so often belittle female fiction writers, I think, which is that we assume a female writer can only tell a story as an act of catharsis or therapy to process her own experience. I think we still find it so impossible. I think we don't struggle with this idea with men, but I think we find it so impossible, the idea that a woman can uh, observe and imagine and indeed imagine the total opposite of their experience. Yeah, it totally disagrees with that old cliche, write what you know, because Nisha isn't writing what she knows. She's writing what she's been forced to learn. I'll read a little bit of the piece. Everyone masks sometimes. That is, they change their speech and gestures when there's a gap between their natural ones and the expectations of those around them. If you've made yourself smile when you were secretly upset, you've masked. This is where the quote-unquote socially awkward stereotype falls apart. Autistic women are often the most socially intelligent of anyone because we have to be. For us, casual conversation is far from casual. You have to think consciously about small talk, about things such as telling someone where you're going when you're leaving the house, saying, bless you, when someone sneezes, or knowing when they're fishing for compliments, when to keep asking them about something they claim not to want to discuss. Because understanding all this is a cognitive effort for me, I am perhaps able to write about it more clearly than if it came intuitively. My novel is about how people behave around each other, how they communicate or don't, and how they understand each other or fail to. The style of social observation in exciting times doesn't come from me taking a step back and wondering why we all do the things we've always done. It's my description of things most people have always done but that I've had to teach myself. I found what she said about how her autism helps her deal with her career as a writer as much as it affects the writing that she does, really thought-provoking. She writes, Any aspiring writers get caught up in what other people think of them. They waste time on networking. They compare themselves with other authors and read others' work with envy. Autism makes it much easier to disregard all of that. I take criticism sportingly because I'm very literal. I listen to what an editor has actually said, whereas a non-autistic writer might interpret, cut this paragraph as, I don't like your work, or even, I don't like you. And then she adds as an aside, and autistic people are the ones who can't communicate. I just thought that was such a a brilliantly illuminating and very humbling thing, actually, um, of, of maybe, obviously, you know, not... Not many writers necessarily have autism, but that should really be a reminder uh, to, to, I think, to take things more 
literally. She, and she points out that the benefits of hard diagnosis, because obviously she's written about how it affects her writing maybe in a positive way or how it affects her career as a writer in a positive way. She says that the, those benefits cannot make up for the grief she still feels, for the years she spent in pain. She had a mental breakdown in her teenage years due to the Herculean effort of going to school and having to interact with people all day long. But she says... Autism has allowed me to forgive myself when some things are harder for me than they seem to be for other people, because that's the whole meaning of having a disability. I think she is the most fascinating, honest and rigorous writer, Nisha Dolan. Um, For further reading, I mean, I really recommend reading Exciting Times. It is the most brilliant summer read um i won't say beach read because i have no idea how that will factor into most people's summers but um yeah it's just a brilliant novel and i also recommend because she's someone she's someone like zadie smith actually that i like hearing uh i like reading interviews with and hearing about the way they look at the world as much as i like reading their fiction so I really recommend an interview she did with Sean Kane in April for The Guardian about why she cannot present as likeable that sounds like a very interesting interview yeah it's a brilliant it's a brilliant interview she's um like as she says you know that her her autism means that she is very literal she's very frank um and that she's had to teach herself certain cues what it does mean is that she's the most sort of thoughtfully considered but not overly self-aware interviewee so she's not worrying about what people will think of her when she says a certain thing and she's speaking with utter truth and conviction um which uh, that may sound really obvious but in in truth i think a lot of us are scared about what we say a lot of the time in case we say the wrong thing um or don't say something thoughtfully enough and nisha just yeah, she sp- she speaks without fear and with conviction. And that is not to say that she doesn't hold fear in other areas of her life or that, as I said, autism has not brought her massive amounts of, of grief and sadness over the years. But what it has brought her is this candour and this rigorous honesty, which is in, yeah, really inspiring to read. Have you watched anything good this week? I have. I adored a nutty old archive programme on BBC iPlayer about Desert Island Discs. It was released in 1982. It shows its age, but in a beautifully eccentric way. It's a celebration of the programme at the time, its 40-year anniversary, and it's presented by Roy Plomley, the programme's original presenter and creator. And it's a mix of him speaking uh, with his very traditional old BBC voice, which is so jarring to listen to now. Yeah, but... But wonderful, but just really is a kind of relic of its time. You did an impression for me. Thank you. Now, on to your third record. But it's 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 slightly higher in tone, isn't it? It's almost like and we have the ladies on today. No, that's that's slightly too high. But it is <laughs> it's it's so specific, isn't it? Um. It is so specific. And it is quite high in its register, you're right. Anyway, I really enjoy listening to it. It does just feel so strange now. But the whole the whole program's quite strange. It's there are all these sketches of him talking about 
the program and the format and how he came up with it whilst pretending to be on a desert island on this sort of desert island set reading survival manuals. <laughs> and uh, there are lots of stories on how he makes the show. He says something very funny about how sometimes he gets the feeling that his interviewee isn't being entirely authentic with the musical choices. So he takes them across the road to the Langham Hotel for a couple of gins. And they, he says that once they kind of open up, they say, oh, I actually chose that piece of music because I've got a brother-in-law who's very musical. And he told me that would be the right piece of music to choose. And then they would change it. And also extraordinarily, he says that originally it was recorded live. So it was really scripted which just the thought of doing an episode of Desert Island Disc Live, I find just so terrifying. But you see these recordings not live, I don't think. This footage of some actual episodes being recorded at the time. So they record Frankie Howard's episode and they show the two of them recording that. And they show Paul McCartney's episode, which I've never actually listened to, but there's a very touching moment. It's worth watching the whole programme just for this moment. When Paul McCartney chooses John Lennon's Beautiful Boy as one of his discs, and this was in 1982, so it's two years after Lennon was assassinated, so still quite recently after his death. And Paul McCartney's so visibly moved by it, he notices the camera with slightly watery eyes and looks away from it, obviously, to conceal his anguish. And the whole programme is, as I say, very eccentric, but just a really lovely piece of BBC history. That is really interesting that they used to record it live. But why did... I wonder why they stopped. Because I was just thinking when you were saying that, I understand that it's like a bit scripted, but loads of other interviews are done live. I think they must have found some sort of record I mean this is just speculation but there must have been some sort of new recording equipment or scheduling or something that allowed them to do pre-record but I just think about Desert Island Discs now that it's such a kind of open and intimate and roving conversation you imagine that it would have been recording for hours and then they choose their kind of best bits and actually it makes so much sense now because I love listening to the Roy Plomley episodes those really really early ones um just because they were often these real historical figures who are his interviewees. But the style is so strange in that you often will hear an interviewee open up and say something that indicates they're about to drop a huge bomb of their private life. And all you hear is a pause and Roy Blomley saying, your next record. And I never understood why that was his interview style. And now I obviously get it because they would have been on a really tight schedule because they've got to get time getting the music, the pieces of music in as well. So the whole thing, thinking of it being live, just makes me feel so stressed out on his behalf. But I feel like that format's always been done, actually, with Desert Island Discs. I always remember Kirsty like, that that it was, it, that, that it was quite brisk it's the same with um terry gross with fresh air there'd be this enormous revelation then it would be what on to the next question i always thought that was very deliberate kirsty probes more sue lawley was was definitely more brisk i mean you're Um, the expert dolly don't get me wrong (laughs) i do not have the archive knowledge that you have but i have whenever i've listened to desert island discs I, and I'm talking about like various different presenters. I have always just assumed that it was quite 
you know, that it it didn't get emotional on purpose, that the guests could get emotional, mm. but the presenter would then go, yeah, like you say, this almost quite jarring, and on to your next record. It always mm. felt, yeah, very contained. Yeah, you're right, because actually so many of those interviews that are really memorable, it's just when the interviewer lets their story speak for itself, all they give is a pause. It's like David Dimbleby. I remember him saying the most important thing as a broadcaster is just to say less. Any other reading to recommend this week, Panda? I gobbled a book that has been in my bookshelf um, since 2018 when it came out called Ladder to the Sky by John Boyne. He is most famous for the Hearts Invisible Furies. Um, Have you heard of that one? Yes, haven't read it, but I've heard great things. Yeah, I've heard lots about that. Great book title, The Hearts Invisible Furies. Love that. Um, I definitely, I want to read that one next. I want to read everything by him now. But anyway, I started with Ladder to the Sky, as that's what I'd had on my bookshelf. And I'm trying to alternate books at the moment. So if I read a new release that um, uh, has landed on my desk, I'll then try and go back to my bookshelf to read one I've been meaning to read for two years or 10 years or 20 years. Anyway, I spent every child-free moment of my weekend reading it during nap times after their bedtime I read it quicker than I have read a book in months it is the most deliciously dark funny shocking and tender book about a sociopathic writer who will do anything for a good story and it really reminds me of any human heart actually as it follows the main character Maurice over 30 years 30 or 40 years as he seduces and discards writers predominantly older gay literary titans for his own benefit oh god I really miss that feeling of being absorbed by a book and being absorbed by a big long story like that I just I'm finding it so hard to read during lockdown this is honestly so easy to read and you also loved any human heart didn't you yeah it's my favorite book yeah it's, it's one of my favorites as well and it but it's like it's more it's more waspish um than any human heart it's a very interesting book about age as well and sort of the there's sort of a cruel compassion to the way he writes about these older gay writers who know that they're being taken for by a fool by this very young man who's beautiful but quite clearly straight and they can't really help themselves anyway and it raises really interesting points this book about who tells stories um like it does it in quite a sort of bald way like Maurice is literally a story stealer. But there are lots of other points around him where there's this very nuanced discussion kind of always going on about how we deal with stories and information and the stories of other people. Um, there's, a, there's a line that just completely jumps out at you now where an older female novelist says to Maurice's wife, Eliza, who's also a writer and has get, and this And the older female novelist has given a quote for Eliza's book jacket. And she says to Eliza about her giving this, you know, endorsement. Can you imagine an old white male writer reading the work of a black 28-year-old woman? She said they'd much rather tell the world that they are rereading all of Henry James in chronological order and finding him a little bit smug. (laughs) So true. It felt very timely in light of the conversations that we're having right now around publishing. Yeah, definitely. 
And there was another line that I picked out, which I just thought was such a pivotal one to a lot of the conversations we have at the moment about success and failure. And that's when one novelist says to Maurice, you are too young to write off your weaknesses as failures. Isn't that a really nice way of looking at it? I've never Mm. thought of it like that before. Mm. I wonder what age that goes up to. When do you think weaknesses become failures? How long have we got? 40? We're living really long now. 50? I, I think I think forever. <laughs> okay, let's go with forever. I find that much more comforting. Honestly, anyone who's looking to escape into an eminently readable, clever, charming and ever so slightly dark and jarring novel... I totally, totally recommend A Ladder to the Sky and I'm going to be digging out more of John Boyne's books to read in the summer. That's a great recommendation. Thanks, Panda. I uh, am offering the low to your high here. If you fancy a big dose of nostalgia, then I suggest you watch Big Brother Best Shows Ever, which you can find on 4OD. Dolly, I would so not expect that to have been something that you would have tuned into. Well, a friend recommended it and said it's just a really interesting time capsule, particularly the episode that I watched, which is when Nasty Nick is confronted by the housemates for cheating, which is staggeringly 20 years ago. I can remember because it was the year 2000, that almost like quite freaky year when everyone semi thought the world was going to end and we all wore those weird glasses to look up at the sky. Anyway, and I remember watching it with some friends and honestly, we were all crowded around the television. It was the most like groundbreaking format ever. And I, I think we forget that now with all the absolute guff that's being made in the name of reality TV. Some of that guff, by the way, I very much enjoy. That is not a like morality or judgment call on it. So the episode is played out in its entirety, which I've never seen before. I've never watched that episode in full. And the, the, there are breaks within the episode where the hosts, Davina McCall and Rylan, share their thoughts and personal memories of the events. Obsessed with Rylan. That's reason enough for me to watch it. I love him. He's great in it. And there's an interview with Craig who's uh, obviously the first series winner about that particular episode as he was the one who kind of led this confrontation of Nasty Nick. It's such a good watch. First of all, I can't believe how low-key and innocent it all is. It's sort of the purest form of UK reality TV that you can watch because it's the prototype. It's like the origin story of UK reality TV. And they're all just so sweet with each other in series one. The house feels more relaxed and lo-fi. They're all like reading books before books were banned by Big Brother. So it just feels like, feels like an innocent time, Pandora. And then books got banned and contestants like Kinga put champagne bottles up their nunny and Michelle gave Stuart a blowjob under the table. Maybe that's yeah. because books got banned. That's what happens when you ban books. <laughs> Sexual things. <laughs> Should I do it in a Roy Plumley voice? Sexual things. Sexual things. Sexual things. Anyway, carry on. (laughs) So this is uh, decidedly unsexual. There's like a very sweet little flirt between Mel and Craig that, again, is just like very tentative and they do it sort of gingerly. But the confrontation itself is just absolutely captivating. And 
there are also these really lovely moments of humanity in it that I'd forgotten about. After the confrontation ends and Nick is in tears packing his bags and all of them know the extent to which he's betrayed them at this point. Mel, who's one of the other housemates, goes in and advises him and comforts him and says, look, you can't just, you can't walk out. It's going to be hell for you out there. You need to think of a strategy of how you're going to, like, was really nice to him. Just like, just these people being really normal and nice and like level-headed. It's it's so different to any other reality TV that we know. And yeah, it's just such a good watch if you fancy a trip down memory lane. I'm definitely going to rewatch that. Because I, as you know, I don't watch huge amounts of telly just because I've got boring sleep problems. But I am finding archive TV really comforting. I've been watching very old episodes of Dragon's Den. And there's one which must be <laughs> so galling. Well, they bought, they've kind of repackaged it and Joe Lysett's been doing the voiceover. But there's one episode that, well, there's a several where they like missed a trick. But there's one where, mm. which must be so galling for Deborah Meaden to watch because she is so deeply unpleasant to this hairdresser who brings in his new style of hairbrush. And she basically says, it's absolute rubbish, I don't know why I buy it. And at one point he says something about her having had highlights and she's furious because she's never had highlights, it's her natural blonde hair. And she's just really, really rude, essentially. Anyway, this man's hairbrush that he's trying to get investment for is the Tangle Teaser, which went on to be worth 200 million. Best hairbrush ever invented. Best hairbrush ever invented and also such a good, like, sort of fuck you business story. Yeah. Yeah, he should do a pretty woman. He should go and find Deborah Meaden and just say, big mistake, huge. And just brandish a neon pink tangle teaser in her face. (laughs) Oh, I really hope that exists somewhere on the internet. Should we do a couple of Ask the High Lows? Yes, I'm going to read the first one and I'm very aware it will sound like it's me and I haven't written this question in to to us. I'm 31 years old and the only single person. <laughs> I really want you to write it anonymously to, to us and see if I give the advice and then present your problem to me off air. Um, you'd have to like mask it a little bit and see if I change my advice. Like maybe I'm really, really like thoughtful to the person on air and like extremely... I don't know, dismissive and unhelpful in person. Anyway, do carry I on. love the idea of me falling apart so much. I've tried Nick Cave, no cigar. I'm now trying Ask the Hilo. Anyway, so this isn't me and I'm not laughing at your despair, listener, because I totally understand where you're coming from. I'm 31 years old and the only single person left in my friendship group, which I have been for about five years. I'm really happy in my life on my own, but I've just been ghosted by a man I'd been talking to all lockdown. And I'm not sure my friends who I really miss understand how lonely it can be being on your own. Now that my friends are all settled, they're becoming increasingly less social. I was wondering if you have any advice on how I could find some like-minded people who aren't blissfully married to augment my friendship circle, not replace the wonderful friends I already have. So... This is so interesting to hear from because this is something I think about all the time is as someone married with young children, how do I carry on being an interesting and interested friend to my single friends? Both my older sisters are single without children. So I'm, you know, really aware that whilst they adore their niece and nephew, their amazing aunts, it's it's like incredibly boring for them if we're 
you know, only ever talking about my children or we're never sort of thinking about what their life might be like. So your question actually really hits me personally because I just, I, I, it's something I think about all the time and something that I'm sure I don't always get right. Um, so Dolly, I'd love to hear what you think. Maybe I can learn from your reply. Well, listener, as you can hear, I'm very lucky that I'm exactly the same as you. All my friends are in long-term relationships. A lot of them are married. And as you can hear from Pandora, who's one of my dearest friend's answers, I'm very lucky that they're all very thoughtful about that. And I think you will be amazed at how encouraging your married friends will be about making sure that you're enjoying the single experience with single people. So my friends are all very understanding about the fact that it's difficult to meet someone if my social life is just hanging out with them and their partner and their children at their home or at my home, or even to be honest, like when we go out, because there's, if if someone's got, <laughs> they can be great wing w- women, but only to an extent, and I wouldn't demand them of that. I'm not going to take my friends out on the pool who aren't going out on the pool. Like that's very boring and exhausting for them. So in my group of friends, there's one other single girl and she and I, Pandora's going to giggle because she knows uh, this decision that we made about a year ago. She and I decided and we made an announcement to our friendship group and they were all very understanding that once a month we had to go out, just the two of us, as two single women looking for whatever. (laughs) I just like the name of it the name the name of the of the monthly night was amusingly called dick diving (laughs) and dolly once left her diary at my house and i wasn't being sneaky i never opened this battered little filofax very 1990s she asked me to photograph what she was up to that week um because even with a diary dolly often doesn't turn up quite where she's meant to be at the right time so i photographed it and on sunday said dick diving and i was like what deliciousness is this <laughs> very sad I couldn't come but also understandably I wasn't I wasn't perhaps the best contender for the job <laughs> so the two of us go out we get dressed <laughs> we get dressed up we go out we're not actually looking for dick we're looking for lovely men for loving relationships <laughs> And I'm just really digging myself a hole with this anecdote that I'm going to regret sharing. No, I think it's really important that you share it, actually. I think it's... No, I think it's... You're doing a good service. I think you have to be proactive and you have to be realistic about who will want to do that with you. So the two of us go, we go to, like... The two of us go out, we sit at a bar, we talk to people, we encourage each other, we make sure that this is part of our social life just once a month because otherwise we are just sitting looking inwards eating or drinking and talking and catching up with people who quite rightly don't want to meet new people on a night out and uh hasn't been massively successful so far in all of our dick dives that we've done we've had just one man approach us who was approaching me to tell me that his wife's a big fan of the high low (laughs) She says it all, really. So anyway, that's my advice. 
all my married friends have been very encouraging of this. And the other thing is, it's just to keep your eyes peeled every time you meet single people. Right before lockdown, I was at a friend's house and there were four of her friends over who were all single and my age. And I don't really know anyone single in my age. So I said to her afterwards, I was like, do you think they'd find it weird if I, if I kind of reached out to them and next time they're going out, if I go out with them? And she was like, no, not at all. Basically what I'm saying is, everyone's more on your side than you think you are because everyone knows how difficult it is to meet people. So just make some choices and be proactive and everyone who loves you will understand. So I've thought of three bits of wisdom that I've gleaned from my sisters. The first one is for people who are either married or coupled up or coupled up with children, which is never be cross or if you're cross inside fine but never show that to your single friend if they cancel you on a Friday or a Saturday night because they've got a date if you want to see them maybe make a plan on a less sexy night but don't demand that they give up a dick diving night to see you I I really try and make it a point that I am always really happy if someone who's single cancels on me to go on a date because I think that's important to be a good friend. If you want to be really invested in someone's happiness, if they're looking for someone, is to not get pissed off about that. Second bit of advice, um, when you're thinking about how to spend your holidays, holiday days that year, don't necessarily just accept all the lovely family invitations. Think about doing something with your single friends. And the third, again, this is just what I've gleaned. This is obviously not my lived experience. I'm not an expert. But is what you've just said, Dolly, is when you meet single people you like, see if they're up for being friends. My sister always has a really good group of single friends to do dinners with, to go out with, to go on holidays with. Now, that friendship group has changed over the years and she's just incredibly good if she meets someone at something just saying um do you fancy coming for dinner or do you fancy coming for drinks with a load of us yeah and it's honestly vanishingly rare for someone to say Mm. I really don't want that not all the Mm. time but a lot of the time that other single person is also looking if not to go dick diving but for some fun friends who are available to go out more because something exactly. I really realized the other day is someone someone asked me the other day Dolly how friendship how our how children had changed our friendship and I was like well I think that's more of a question about like how children change any friendship and what I realized is changes me as a friend is that I can hopefully still be the funny friend but I can't mm. be the fun friend at the moment and that's yes, you freeing- can Perhaps I can be the fun friend sometimes, but I can't Mm. be the fun friend every night. And that's okay. And that's someone else's job. And thank you always for being such a good married friend to this single gal. So climb up onto that diving board and jump right in because the water's lovely. It's not. It's actually lukewarm and uh, pretty shallow and there's very little here. But have a good old go anyway. Any swim's a good swim at the moment, Dolly. Thank you for listening to The Hilo. You can speak to us by emailing show at gmail.com. You can tweet us at show. You can buy our merch, thehiloshop.com, where all proceeds go to charity, 50% to Women's Aid and 50% to Show Racism the Red Card. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. I'll be gone. I'm on a single
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.